VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, September the 27th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams is back in the producer's chair today. We're looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial and get in the queue, 273-5211, or elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. I don't know if you're following along with the continued exploits of our very own Liam Hickey playing with, of course, Canada's para-ice hockey team. They're playing in Ostrava in the Czech Republic and looking good out there as well. So they won uh, a game over the weekend 5-2 against what they're calling Team IPH, which is made up of Germans, Norwegians, and Slovakians. Hickey scored twice. So they play their arch rival the United States today. So Liam Hickey, as you know, as a frequent listener to the program, one of my favorite athletes from this province of all time, and taking on the USA today. So it's 10 a.m. Eastern. So you can you listen to this program until 11.30. Then maybe split your focus to check out the game. All right, I don't know if you're following along with the tail end of the regular season in Major League Baseball. Exciting one last night with the Jays, 3-2 win over the Yankees in 10 innings. But curiously, and I think amazingly, watching the uh, watching Aaron Judge, I don't like the Yankees, but I do like Aaron Judge. I suppose everyone digs the long ball. So he's still sitting on 60 home runs, chasing the American League record of 61, of course, set by Roger Maris back in 1961. But one for three last night, so he remains in front of all the three notable categories to win the American League Triple Crown. He's hitting 314 with 60 home runs and 128 RBIs. I don't even mind if he gets it against the Jays, to be honest, although you need them to hold on and make a wild card spot. So, also over the weekend, I meant to mention it yesterday, but of course we're all reeling from the aftermath of Fiona. Pretty exclusive club joined by Cardinal slugger Albert Pujols. So he has now 700 home runs, 3,000 hits, 2,000 RBIs. There's only two people in the club, Albert Pujols and Hank Aaron. <laughs> so talk about exclusive company to find yourself in with those, those two ladios. All right, a couple of quick notables today in history. Today, 1908, uh, at the Ford Production Facility in Detroit, Michigan, they began producing the first ever Model Ts. So production on the Model T started today. Just look where we've come. You know, it's interesting. When you talk about the Model T and the internal combustion engine-powered cars and now the transition some people are making to a hybrid or an electric vehicle, nothing's perfect, but some of those transitions are absolutely happening. People still view the electric vehicle as a new invention, a new option, when, in fact, the first patents for electric vehicles are decades old. It just never got off the ground for a variety of reasons. But anyway, that's that. And let's take a look at uh, what has been the longest-running entertainment program in the history of the United States, in particular, and I guess North America, is The Tonight Show. It debuted today, uh, 68 years ago. And, of course, the first host, people always think about Johnny Carson, right? He hosted for 30 years. But Steve Allen was the first host. Then he passed off the baton to Jack Parr. Then, of course, Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien, Jimmy Fallon was hosted for the last number of years. But... Over 12,000 episodes of The Tonight Show debuted 68 years ago today. And this one kind of got me. The great Tony Bennett, right? Absolute legend. It was today in 2011 that Tony Bennett became the oldest living person to top the U.S. album chart. He was 85 years old with the, a record called du uh, Duets 2. It went to number one. 
But it was also his first number one album in his legendary career, Tony Bennett. All right. I don't know last night if you had the opportunity after sunset to look to the skies to see Jupiter, not only the largest planet in the solar system, but yesterday at its peak brightness. Apparently reached something what they call in opposition. That's an event that occurs when the celestial object, Jupiter, rises in the east and the sun sets in the west, putting both the sun and the object on opposite sides of the earth. So it's really quite bright. People see it all the time and don't maybe necessarily understand that it is Jupiter shining as bright as it is. And last night was its brightest in 59 years. So Jupiter is about 966 million kilometers away. And you can see it. Pretty cool stuff. Anyway. And as if we don't have enough to worry about on Earth, this was an exciting uh, exercise uh, held by NASA yesterday. So they plowed a spacecraft or slammed a spacecraft into an asteroid. So, you know, while we talk about all the defense mechanisms here on Earth, just imagine NASA working towards protecting the Earth if and when a massive asteroid comes hurtling at us. So they slam it in to try to change the trajectory or the orbit path of an asteroid. And they picked one that's been out there for since we uh, recognized and understood what asteroids were and where they were. So this one's had a steady orbit for so long, they thought it was a safe opportunity to try to change the trajectory and or the orbital path of an asteroid, but they did it yesterday. So they took on the, a target called uh, Dimorphos, a 160-meter asteroid. So anyway, as if we don't have enough to worry about. Okay. So we, of course, are dealing with the aftermath of Fiona, and everyone knows the story, and for some people... The coverage can be overwhelming, and when things like this happen, the members of the media, including me, you know, we have to temper how we talk about things, because for some, they're living the horror and the nightmare that is Fiona. And for others who weren't in the path, thankfully in the path, of the devastation, sometimes you might get a little bit overcome with some of the coverage. But we need to talk about it, because the rebuild is important, and we all play an active role. Some of the stories are truly remarkable. You know, there hasn't been a final tally done. It's going to be take a while before we figure out just how many homes. We know the ones that have been lost. I mean, the videos are quite clear. Here comes the storm surge. Homes that have been there for decades slammed to the ground, washed into the ocean. Extraordinary. Terrifying. Other homes, they look like they're okay, but of course they're unlivable, uninhabitable because of the damage suffered during the storm. So the final tally hasn't yet been put forward. The province has said that they're going to step up, and if you're underinsured or uninsured, they're going to be there for these people. Good. P proper thing. I don't think it's too early to think about, you know, because we were talking about it last week, even before the storm hit, is how we build and where we build. Because we know the risks associated with being so close to the high water mark of the ocean. So... I get it, and this is not pointing a finger of criticism or blame at anyone who had a home built close to the water, because that's how we settled. You know, many of these homes were built purposefully to be close to their fishing stage, or whatever the case may be. But now, while well, we know what we know, and we understand the risks associated with it, then there is going to have to be careful conversation about how we rebuild and where we rebuild. And of course, it is important to have someone in place, in this case the federal and provincial government, to put forward the supports because, you know, someone sent me an email saying, I'm not really sure about this approach to footing the bill for those who've lost their home. Well, from my perspective, we have to do it. Just think about it. If you're talking about overall cost, what's the cost associated with people who have been displaced to not have a place to go back to, to not be able to rebuild? 
you know, insurance is important, but, you know, full lot of replacement insurance is also hard to come by. And then, as I mentioned yesterday, and continue to think about it uh, as I walked around my own home yesterday afternoon and evening, is just eyeballing things that if you lost them, what would you do? They can't be replaced. No insurance is going to cover my boy's baby books, you know, or some other collectibles that you might have in your home that are important to you, or something that Nan or Pop gave you, or your mom or dad, or whatever the case may be. And when they're gone, they're gone. Some of the stories you hear about, for instance, I heard this uh, one lady, she put a Facebook uh, page together where if you find something of personal note or importance to someone, just put it on that page and so you can hopefully reunite people. And one woman went back to where her home once stood and found just one sentimental object. It was a Christmas de- uh, uh, decoration with her, one of her children's baby feet prints in it. I mean, just you think about those stories. And it's not in an effort to overwhelm you again this morning with it, but it's just so absolutely real. Apparently, people across the province are really stepping up with the donations as well. So they were flooded with donations yesterday in Port Basque and other communities who have been pummeled by the storm. And good on you if you were able to make a donation of whether it be clothing or dry goods or bottled water or baby formula or pillows or blankets or toiletries, whatever the case may be, because just think about it. Some people made away with only their clothes on their back. Everything else is gone. Then there's the monetary donation. It's up to you how you donate your money if you are able to do so. You know, be mindful of a couple of things. Even if people establish things like a GoFundMe, it comes with a service fee on the other end. You know, again, you do what you want with your own money. And inside the opportunity to donate to the Canadian Red Cross... It's probably not a bad idea, given the fact that even if people are mocking it, that the federal government is going to match those donations heading towards Fiona recovery. So just give that some consideration if you're so inclined. Yesterday we had Judy Morrow. She's a lawyer from Morrow, Morrow and Crosby talking about offering free legal service. And I think you're going to see more of this because people felt it, even if they were nowhere near the storm and the havoc that it wreaked on the southwest coast. She's offering legal advice and legal assistance in trying to help people navigate their insurance claims. And even if you don't have the insurance in place or you're underinsured, got to go through the process anyway to even be eligible for government supports. So just keep that in mind. And this is all going to take time. You know, the stories you hear about the woman who was able to latch on to a roll bar or some sort of bar on a vehicle to save herself from being swept away. And, of course, we know one poor woman was lost. And apparently there was two people in that home, and they were pre- preparing to leave, and then the wave struck. One made it out, one did not. Just So if you're in the area, or even if you're not in the area, and you want to talk about what needs to be done, what should be done, even if it's things like a plea coming from a fish harvester, which I thought made a lot of sense, is when they've lost their enterprise or some component of their fishing enterprise. You know, what's DFO going to do here? These are all important, big questions that are being asked, and it is going to take time, but I think people are going to, we're going to get through it. And then some stories which are lighthearted in nature. Because that's all part of the resilience required through these difficult times. You know, even the lady who went back to where her her, her home once stood and opened up the fridge to find her favorite beverage, a six-pack of White Claw, you know, and cheering the fact that she found something that was belonging to her, so... Hard to even know what to talk about when we bring up these stories. but And, of course, like I mentioned yesterday, it's critically important. You can indeed think of and think about and try to be part of the recovery effort 
All the while, other issues of importance to you, we can keep them on the front burner. It doesn't mean we're detracting any focus or coverage or thoughts being spared or positive vibes being sent to the folks in the Southwest Coast, but other issues are out there to be discussed, and we'll have those conversations, I'm sure, with you today. All right. This one was anticipated. So there has always been a sunset clauses for a lot of the pandemic restrictions and or support programs. And one of which has been really controversial and probably has contributed to some additional unnecessary woes felt in whether it be border towns and or the tourism industry. And people have been clamoring for the restrictions at the border to be removed. And now, as of October the 1st, they will be. Some of the things that people will no longer have to do. You don't have to submit your public health info through the ArriveCan app or the website. The ArriveCan will be optional. And just because I use it and had no problem doesn't mean others haven't experienced some sort of problem with ArriveCan. So they'll go back to filling out their paper declaration, even though, you know, some of the controversies around, uh, surrounding ArriveCan was very similar to the COVID Alert app. Where people didn't want it, they thought the government was tracking their every move and all that stuff, even though there was no GPS on it. Privacy commissioners thought it was a good idea. And nobody used it, or very, very few Canadians used it, because of the thoughts that government was in your phone. But the ArriveCan app, it's going to remain, but it will be optional. You won't have to provide proof of vaccination any longer. There won't be any testing requirements and or quarantine requirements, regardless of your vaccination status. So you don't have to figure out uh, any questionnaires or any of those types of things. Masks have been removed as a mandatory feature on planes and trains. You know, when you look around, and notably, like one of the places I go just about every single day is the grocery store. And when the mask mandate went away, a lot of people, the vast majority, continue to wear them. Now, very rare. Very rare to see people wearing a mask in a public indoor space, but the masking is going away on the planes and on the trains. And, you know, it depends on who you are. And sometimes it really just depends on your political leanings, whether or not you think these are good ideas to remove. Because there hasn't been one silver bullet. There hasn't been one suit of armor that has been the be-all and end-all with pandemic protections and public health policies. In conjunction, in combination, they did indeed keep people safer. But it's going away if you want to chime in on either side of the border travel restriction issue. We can do it. And, of course... predictably, there was people taking political victory laps, you know, taking ownership, and they say that because of their efforts that these things were dropped, it would have to be reviewed on September 30th. Whether or not public pressure or political polling played a role, I don't know. But it is sort of funny, isn't it? Some people who have been really on that issue and pushing back against it, whether it be masks or the arrive can or testing or quarantine, and now seemingly not even pleased that they're going away exactly what they wanted. I suppose that just have to come up with the next issue to pounce on. And we can talk about every issue under the sun, as you know. And regarding that, you know, we all know the pressures and the price points and the uh, accessibility and flight schedules to get in and out of this province. You know, there's, there's now four low-cost, no-frill airlines in the country. So yesterday, the launch of Canada Jetlines, joining Lynx, Swoop, and Flair. They all sound so good, but if, of course, you've got to be in a major hub to take advantage of them. And then how long can they last? With the increased cost of a variety of things, including fuel, for instance, how long can the low-cost uh, low airlines actually stay in the air? Anyway, talk about cost. So I don't really know what to make of this one, but the federal NDP are proposing a parliamentary probe into the price of groceries. 
The increase has been about 10.8% year over year for the price of groceries. And of course, it depends on what you're buying to experience whatever the hike or the spike in the prices may be. So yes, the grocery store chains are posting massive profits, and they're up across the board, you know, as much as 3 and 4%. I know the margins are not huge, but the profitability is massive. Even if you're simply talking about, let's say, for instance, Loblaws, quarterly profit of three, $387 million. Profit's not a bad word. But what does this actually mean? A political probe into things like this, you know, to see whether or not the gouge is real or to see what they're calling what would be excessive profits. What constitutes an excessive profit? You know, I get it. Look, I go to the grocery store almost every day and I'm just alarmed every time I see the total pop up where there's a very paltry number of grocery items, but yet a huge sum required to pay for it. So I get what they're trying to achieve here. But we can't be getting too far and too deep into trying to talk what is an excessive profit. People talk about windfall profits and the increased taxation on big companies. Okay, but what's the benchmark? What are we using here? You know, what exactly are we trying to achieve? Because if you say an excessive profit is anything, anything north of $250 million, how and who are we to say that? I don't really know. I'd like to see some relief at the grocery store. Inflation has been coming down, not very quickly, but it's at 7%. But yet, grocery prices are way up. But it feels like a bit of political theater. You know, whether it be windfall and oil and gas companies and all the rest of it, I just don't know how we deduce where is the breaking point or the threshold to deem something as being excessive profit. I just don't know. It sounds like a worthwhile investigation, but what are the parameters? What are the terms of reference here? What does it even mean? But anyway, the federal NDP think that that's something we should be doing. Here's an interesting one on that front, because we all have to eat. And thankfully, the government is mobilizing to support folks uh, affected by, like, the hurricane. So when there's fires or floods or massive storms, governments are quick to respond, and rightfully so. It's the critical time for them to show the leadership and the support for Canadians. I, I totally understand that. But just juxtapose it with the numbers of Canadians who are fully reliant on a food bank. But yet we don't mobilize on that front. It just seems to me that the conversation stops with food insecurity and some 22,000 children in this province are living in a home that is food insecure. We know upwards of 5 million Canadians are almost fully reliant on a food bank. And where's the mobilization on that front? I know I think and talk about food a lot, but it's the necessity of life. You know, we are a massive country and a modernized first world country, and yet how many Canadians are hungry? That, uh, for some reason, I guess it's just part of the nature of the beast doing this job. I think about the food issue all the time. So we mobilize in reaction to storms, and we should. We mobilize when there's massive fires, rightfully so. Floods, absolutely. Where's the mobilization to deal with the food issues? How many of you out there today are knowing you have to restock the fridge or the cupboard, and yet a trip to the grocery store, considering the price of gas and then the price of the food product inside the store, is, like, unbelievable. And people continue to share stories with me of being incorrectly taxed on the so-called sugary drinks. Some of the tax, we understood it was going to be applied. People don't like it, and I get that. If it changes your, your purchasing habits, fair ball. But some of the taxes that were not supposed to be on certain products are being applied. Now, we know what happens at the wholesale and distributorship level, but maybe some of it is because of the retailer as well. But if you want to share any of those stories or talk about anything under the sun, tell me some good news. We're on Twitter. 
We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Best opportunity to speak to the listening public is to call the program, which you can do right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin on the top of the board. Line number one. Say good morning to the Secretary-Treasurer at the FFAW. That's Jason Spingle. Good morning, Jason. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Yeah, no, I just heard your uh, preamble talking about food security, and it's, uh, yeah, to think, I think about that a lot, about people in a country like ours, I guess, in a province, uh, you know, we are very affluent and that people don't have enough good food, and it's, uh, it's tough to think about, but uh, it is a problem we have, and I don't know if we'll be able to solve it. But in any case, uh, I, I wanted to talk about, of course, uh, the devastating impacts of Fiona, particularly on the southwest coast. And, uh, you know, we talked to our uh, leadership last night in that area, a day following, uh, or two days following the storm, I guess, and it's just it's just unbelievable. They're, they can't really believe it. And, uh, you know, they reflected their, their, their uh, what they saw, I guess, their, their summation of what they saw reflected what you see in the pictures for sure. It's just people that have been fishing Living there and fishing there their whole lives, like their like their for you know like their uh, ancestors before them, and no one can could ever have believed of, of what happened there. I you know some of the images and videos they will haunt a lot of people for an awful long time. It's hard to believe that you know that those those are things you you see in movies about tsunamis, and there it was striking us right where we live. It's uh, it's really quite something. And, of course, you know, I see a story where I think someone told me that in Burnt Island, for instance, every single fishing stage is in the is gone. It's in the ocean. Gone. Gone for good. So I hear the, some of the, the uh, stories coming from fish harvesters and their enterprises that have been ripped apart, and financially the recovery is tricky. I saw one, I thought, very insightful comment coming from a fish harvester. I believe they live out in Arnold's Cove is, you know, what will DFO do? Will it be a matter of uh, waiving some fees for next year and to be part of the rebuild as opposed to tweeting about don't poach a lobster on the beach? So some of these supports are going to have to come to pass, I suppose, because, you know, we see when there's a sea ice issue or storm-related matters and the uh, season has been interrupted. So what are you hearing from your members? Yeah, so certainly, no, absolutely on all those points. So uh, thankfully not everyone, uh, based on reports we had, um, were impacted depending on uh, where their fishing stages were, but many, many were. And uh, so, what we're doing right now, we're getting, uh, um, we're having uh, all the members that have been impacted contact us, and we will be going to meet with them to get a detailed description of what they lost. Uh, you know, some have tens of thousands of dollars in stages. Uh, we call them stages, of course. You know what that is? Uh, you know, a fishing shed. And near the water with all, uh, with, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of lobster traps and long line gear and tools. I mean, that's where a lot of harvesters, that's, that's, their, that's their storage sheds as well as their fishing sheds for their fishing gear. So, um, you know, uh, I just talked to one harvester this morning. He's got more than uh, half his lobster traps, so wire lobster traps now. I'd say uh, to get ready to put one of those in the water, you're talking about 300 bucks a trap, right? So these are the type of costs. Nothing is cheap anymore for sure. Uh, and he lost uh, his holler motor, his gas holler motor, which is uh, $5,000 to replace one of those, right? And you just can't fish without it. So we're, we're going to be meeting with, our, uh, with all the harvesters impacted one-on-one. Going to have our staff do that and get a, a detailed listing of uh, of what type of damages they had, and we'll be certainly taking for uh, taking that forward to uh, to the government officials and agencies because uh, 
you know, I see that the Premier has stated they're, they're um, going to be a compensation package. And certainly for people who have lost their their homes, one you know, for sure. But, uh, you know, the fishery is, is uh, you know, the, the, uh, is the main economic driver and the sole one in a lot of these communities, Burnt Islands and, uh, and Rose Blanche, La Poyle, uh, and even port of so uh, along with you know people that work for marine atlantic too but i mean the fishery is is it in burn islands for example and we saw the devastation there so we'll be working with our leadership which have always been great and we'll get the details and we'll be uh, looking to have those businesses those fishing enterprises compensated as well that's our goal how common is it for the fish harvesters to have things like their hauling motors insured because i mean most people in business they put the protections in place whether it be with their partners and or with insurance companies those types of things so how common would it be for the boys or the fish yeah, harvesters I, I to have the insurance uh, most of them don't have uh, much insurance i guess that'll be factored in uh, but uh, but uh, what i would say is the type of uh, event we've had here, no one could have ever forecast. And then the question would be, I saw a post this morning uh, about someone in the Port of Basque area to check with their um, insurance company, and, and, his, and the reply was, well, because it's, uh, I don't know what you say, storm surge slash act of God that he won't be covered. Uh, you know, I don't know all the details, but that was the post that was there. So I suspect that's going to be the case, even if they, even if they have some insurance, that this may not be covered. So they're going to need some help to get back on their feet, and we're going to do everything we can to, to try to help them. But, uh, yeah, the uh, description of the event was, uh, I mean, people just couldn't, could never have uh, dreamed it. Uh, for example, in, in Port of Basque, uh, Channel Head, I mean, everyone's pretty familiar with that. I guess most of us have steamed by it, or when we're leaving or coming into Port of Basque, you're talking about a 100-foot rock wall there. And the sea came in over that like... Uh, like basically, and like it was nothing. It was uh, surreal to say the least, right? So, <laughs> yeah, it's going to take time for these, uh, for all these big questions to be answered, and we'll see what becomes of it. But a lot of people in different walks of life are going to need some sort of support to get back on their feet, because just I, I still can't imagine, and it consumes my thoughts ever since Saturdays. Imagine one day you've got a home and all the contents in it that you worked all your life and some of the sentimental value pieces that have all of a sudden the next day gone and gone forever. Remarkable stuff. Uh, Jason, uh, I wish you well. I appreciate your time. Did you want to say anything else? Sorry. Oh, no. I just say I talked to my dad last night and you just uh, you just stated exactly what he said. Right. Your your home. You know, that was difficult for him to watch. And and, uh, I guess for all of us, that's that's what he said, basically. Right. That uh, people that had their homes there. You go and they go back and it's not there. I mean, uh, this is it's difficult to think about, right? Yeah. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. Take and care. Bye bye. Jason Spingle, Secretary Treasurer at the FFAW. A- and again, someone asked me to uh, clarify what I had said regarding uh, insurance provisions offered by the government if you're uninsured or underinsured to try to replace your property. You know, I, I get it. There's been lots of opportunities. Like, for instance, my basement flooded out years ago, four or five years ago, whatever it was. And that was enough to drive me around the bend. And someone just sent an email with a very similar story saying, well, you know, my property uh, was flooded, whatever, whatever the reason was. And where was government then? Okay, look, I get it. You know, the questions will be asked, well, how come it's support for someone and not support for me? When it's widespread devastation, I don't think government really has its, uh, any options available. But the individual stories are real. I totally understand. 
But if we're factoring in cost-related matters here, what's the cost of not supporting? What's the cost of them not having a place to live? You know, societally, morally, financially. So I think some of these implications are big. So when we do a, a, an assessment of how government policy should work and how they work or if they don't work, you know, it's a shame that we put sometimes cost-benefit analysis into that focus. But, of course, we have to because nothing's free in this world. But I think I don't know where government has an option to not be there for people in these types of events. I just don't know what the option would be. And certainly I think we'll be making bad situations worse by not having some support in place. But anyway, you want to talk about that? And, of course, please, please do consider that you do not have to call about the storm to talk about important issues of the day. It doesn't mean you don't care. It just means that there's so much still going on, and we can have those conversations. And Jason uh, Spingle just mentioned a rock outcrop that the sea came in over, and it's never happened before. Have you seen the pictures of the teacup rock? Can you picture that in your mind's eye, Prince Edward Island? Pretty famous. I don't know how many millions of people have posed for a photograph uh, standing on one portion of the teacup rock. Gone. Destroyed. Just amazing power. The merciless Atlantic. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. Good morning, Rose. You're on the air. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How about you? Oh, not to that. I have some clothes that you could send to Port of Basque, but the thing about it is I don't have transportation to get where it's going. Is there anyone could come and pick it up? Yes, we'll get that organized for you, Rose. And don't give us your specific uh, location live on the air, but you're in St. John's by the look of the phone number, right? Yes. Okay. Now, it, it, it's, I have eight garbage bags, and I ran out of bags, so I put it in a container. Okay. So it's a fair amount of clothes. It's good clothes. It's bed clothes, bed sheets, winter boots, summer boots and everything. Okay. Well, that's very kind of you, so I'll help organize that. So what I'm going to do, Dave, can I put Rose on hold and you get her particulars for me? So we'll get your uh, your address, your street address, and of course we have your phone number, so leave it with me. I'll get it organized. Someone will be by to pick that up. Okay. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rose. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, and maybe this fella on three has a, an idea about picking up that kind of donation. Let's go. Uh, line number three, say good morning to Dave Andrews at Freightway Transportation. Good morning, Dave. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Excellent. You? Uh, fantastic. Uh, first of all, you know, I want to say thank you to everybody who donated. Uh, you know, the community itself and then all the businesses involved. Uh, the outcry has been, outreach has been phenomenal. Uh, we already have one trailer that will be full today, uh, like, well, within the next 15 minutes. Uh, we have another trailer that will be full by the, by probably about two o'clock today with donations. Um, I want to say thank you to some people who were, you know, like to our staff, first of all, they've, uh, they've helped and outreach to everybody around, uh, and uh, we want to continue today, but uh, we have to cut it off at some point because 
it will be too much. Yeah, I heard some of the folks in Port of Bath saying they don't need any more donations today. Every bit of space they had to store them was occupied with people's generosity. So that's the good news. Uh, so I know yesterday when we spoke, uh, if people needed to help coordinate and maybe get some stuff picked up, can that lady who just called Rose, can she call Susan Anthony and get something arranged, or do you want me to work on it? Um, Susan uh, Susan was uh, took her time off yesterday to donate time to the day. Uh, I know that she's uh, a little bit occupied at the moment. Uh, if you want to give her my number, we can make an arrangement there for someone to pick it up for no problem. Okay, I'll do exactly that. So I got your number. We gave it out yesterday, so I know you don't mind. 690-4920. So I'll give Rose that information. And if you have any uh, hit any hiccups or hurdles with it, leave it to me. I'll get someone to go get it. And I and I and we really appreciate that. And, you know, I want to put a thank you out to some companies that have made some really good donations to us. Uh, you know, we have Sobeys in Paradise, Choppers in Paradise, Costco and, I, and their employees, Madsen, NC Hutton, RD Industrial, uh, DF Birds, Pearl Springs, Browning Harvey, Dixon Company, uh, Whitecap International, just to name some of them, Samson Equipment, just to name a few that have reached out to help donate some of the supplies that we have had here today. Well, one of my boys went over with our donation yesterday. He said it was madness in the parking lot at 27 Duffy. Well, we never stopped. It was a continuous roll of traffic. What we didn't see after 300 vehicles here yesterday would be a joke. Yeah, amazing. Uh, keep up the good work, Dave. Stay in touch. Let us know what we can do to help you out. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Uh, like I said, we're going to shut down 1121 uh, came out Road at 12 o'clock today. And then between 2 and 3 o'clock, we're going to close down 27 Duffy Place. Uh, like I said, we, ha we we really appreciate everybody's reach out. It's just we can't we there's, we don't want to overfill everybody either. Fair ball. Uh, keep up the good work, Dave. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Penny. Have a good day. You too. Bye bye. It's Dave Andrews from Freightway Transportation, and of course, 1121 Mount is the home of Kekatalik Kekatalik Fisheries Corporation. Boy, I struggle with those names. Uh, let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I want to start with uh, with uh, the West Coast. I was out there. I was part of Burnt Islands Come Home Year this year, and I think I stayed in one of the residents' Airbnbs that was wiped out by the storm surges. And our hearts go out to them. And you know, listening to some of the hardened like fishermen talking about how you know they've been on the ocean their lifetime, they've been on the Great Lakes their lifetime, and um, you can hear the emotion in her voice. If, you know, it's like they've looked the devil in the face. And uh, and you hear people saying that they're just not going to be able to go back to their homes knowing that there's a chance this could happen again. And, you know, it, it just causes me to, you know, reflect on... And, and again, you know, we, we know it's pretty pretty accepted now that, that, uh, that these storms are getting more intense and... Um, and you know, it's whether I don't know if it's too early to be having these type of conversations, but I know there's always when we witness the shootings down in the United States and the gun lobby and the conservatives push back and say it's not the time to have these conversations, and all of us say, well, maybe it is the time to have these conversations. So, so you know, I, I feel like it's the same sort of thing with with Hurricane or post tropical storm or whatever you want to call Fiona when it when it hit our shores. So I just want to want to have that conversation. And I do it with with great deal of respect, and and knowing that there's people who are just just in total shock, still not able to even process. And also, 
with the revelation that um, most insurance, well, no insurance in Canada covers storm surges, according to the Canadian uh, Insurance Institute. And, you know, just knowing that, you know, how, how do we as a province uh, reconcile the fact that these, you know, you had houses that had been there for generations, um, had waves hitting the second story. So I know you've you've started this conversation before, Fiona, about rebuilding, and and although it's very difficult, you know, are we at this point? And I believe we are at the point where we need to eat community by community, and 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 as a province, we need to sit back and and take the experts' advice and look at the areas that are probably in the future not safely uh, livable. It, it, you know, it doesn't even matter why it's happening, even though to just to discount or to pretend that cl- climate change in the warming oceans doesn't have a direct impact on the severity and frequency of storms is just, you know, sticking our head in the sand. Even if you just go to the dollars and cents, even if you just go to the insurance companies, they'll tell you. It's becoming more and more expensive annually to cover and to compensate people for losses in fires and floods and storms. It just is. So it doesn't even matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you agree with regarding science or otherwise. The fact is it's becoming more and more expensive. And just think about it. At some point, insurance companies will refuse to insure certain things, certain properties, simply based on the proximity to whether it be the ocean or a forest or like, for, like in the Mississippi Delta. You can't get insurance. Why? Because of the repeated flooding. So that's something we're going to have to grapple with, is how we build, rebuild and where we rebuild. It doesn't mean that you can't have a community close by the ocean. Of course you can. But the measures in place, whether it be based on municipal government policy or the province or the feds or individual responsibility, it's going to play an active role. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks about science. It's just going to be the reality of how you get compensated or covered for damages or losses based on storms. It's just happening. And so that has to be consideration. That's not cold hard. That's not mean-spirited. This is something we just have to think about openly and honestly because that will be the reality that many people face is you won't be able to get insured. So it's just something that's happening. And I don't, you know, someone's mad at me because I spoke about it this morning about how we rebuild and where we rebuild. It's not to be cold-hearted because if we're going to rebuild, why wouldn't we think about how and where? So anyway. You know, it's Newfoundlanders are resilient. And, um, you know, there has been bad storms in the past that have done damage to structures and to breakwaters and and all that type of stuff. And it doesn't mean you write off every community. No, of course not. Um, however, you know that storm could have hit anywhere. Could have hit St. John's. Yep. Could have been a whole. Could have had a lot of rain. I mean, they didn't really have a lot of rain. I mean, last year we had we had the big rain event that took out the highways. And and so you know. Humans are designed to forget pain, and that's why we keep having babies, and that's why you know people get up every day. Um, however, wisdom—you uh, know—how many times do you have to get smacked in the face? I mean, if you live on the West Coast right now, you've had multiple years of of cataclysmic events. I mean, last last week it was it was a typhoon Murbach that hit Alaska. You know, they'd never experienced anything like that before, and and just one thing after another. So I just call on people to to in that respectfully to you know we need to try and start thinking a little further forward than the next election or or the next trip to wherever we're planning our trip and I, and I and I want to want to draw a straight line as well you had Seamus on yesterday and 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 I respect Seamus um and you know one thing the question was asked is about you know the the 
the um, MPs not being in the House. And, 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 you know, again, this is this bigger conversation is how do we reduce our carbon footprint? And I kind of expected him to make a comment about flying, but I guess that's kind of a little taboo. I think he did, uh, you know, maybe in a roundabout fashion because he yeah. talked about, you know, the, the fact of the matter is it's a massive country. So whether it be time and cost and impact of making sure that all 338 parliamentarians are in Ottawa all the time when the House is open, I think that's the roundabout way he went to speak to that factor. <clears throat> Hybrid parliament, I guess it can work. I think just part of this is just pandemic fatigue, boy. It just really is. Would it have been a big deal if they had to make these types of policy announcements or adjustments five years ago and say, you know, for associated costs, for taxpaying Canadians, we're going to allow MPs to uh, participate in parliamentary functions uh, virtually. And we'll rotate it so that people are indeed in Ottawa. That, you know, people might have been able to have a, a legitimate stand back, think about it, uh, observation of whether or not that was a good idea. Because if you put it in dollars and cents, that's where people pique their interest, right? If you say, okay, we're going to reduce the expenses for parliamentarians because we're going to X, X, Y, Z, people will say, okay, I like that. But now because of where we are and the consternation of Canadians and the political divide that is real in some form, but uh, perceived in other forms, is maybe that would have been something we could deal with. But now we can't really deal with anything. <laughs> Everything that comes up is just so immediately filled with rage and faux outrage and, and divisiveness that we're just having a hard time making any practical decisions or, or forward steps because it's just tough. It's become tough. And I think the pandemic is largely to blame. People are just worn out. We are. But, you know, I think, you know, yeah, Janine, Janine Hubbard, I heard her over the weekend and, um, you know, she was saying how, you know, for people's mental health, like the number one thing a lot of times is just to do something, you know, s sitting around and not doing something. Like even if it's a tiny, insignificant thing, you know, in my, to my mind, every other news item is secondary to climate change and how it's affecting the people of the planet. I mean, a lot of times people, the global south are the ones who are suffering the most from climate change. They're the ones who are experiencing the most, uh, who have the most to lose, and they're the poor people. And, and, it, and, it, and it's always been known that the people who've contributed the least, sorry, the most to climate change are the ones who are suffering the most. But now, you know, it's gotten to that point. If you're watching that end of the world movie, it's gotten to the point where the stuff that you saw on the news that you flicked, you know, went away because, you know, a hurricane wiped out the Philippines again or or one of the Caribbean islands again. You know, it was terrible and, you know, our hearts went out to them. But then the next news story the next day was something else that was that caught our attention. But now these these storms are moving into the rich countries, into Europe, into the United States, into Canada. And they're just one. We're getting pummeled one after another. And every decision that we make as people, individuals needs to take that into account. We all have that responsibility, not only to ourselves and to our grandchildren. You know, everybody needs to sit back and think, like, everything that we do, every decision we make, what is the carbon impact? Every decision the government makes. I mean, we just had a whole bunch of politicians and their entourage flew all the way to Turkey and um, flew back. And, and meanwhile, that carbon that was created has warmed the atmosphere just that little bit more and in 20 years or 10 years or five years, the next hurricane might be fueled a couple of kilometers more by that trip. And and everything matters. Like, and people, I know we all want to just keep enjoying our lives, and I do too. And I have this, traveling was a big thing for me. And, and, and I, I really, 
I just can't in good conscience even consider it anymore. And I, I just call on people, just think about your every choice you make, and governments in particular. Every choice that we make needs to have climate change as, you know, how much carbon does that produce? And and I, I just call on everybody once again to sit back and at this time to try and realize that you don't have to suffer. You know, you, you we my wife and I had a great stay-at-home vacation, and as much as I love heat and sun, there was lots of heat and sun this summer, and uh, you know, I just call on everybody to understood. Take it serious. Appreciate the time, Tom. Take care. Everyone. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, and you know the bit about traveling to Gallipoli or Dublin or going to the UN or going to G seven summits and stuff. Again, when was, when we're talking about storm response, maybe it's just because I choose to deal with it this fashion. But the focus on the community and the people is really, I think, the most important thing. There will always be some debate or discussion or mockery of a politician who goes somewhere or does not go somewhere they it's truly an era of damned if you do damned if you don't if you don't go to Gallipoli you're spitting in the face of the veterans if you don't go to Port of Basque then you don't care about the people if you go to Port of Basque it's for a photo op I mean this is where we are so I think probably the focus on what's happened to people is probably a little bit better you know, with our energy, you can do exactly what you want. You can go up one side and down the other side of Polyev or Fury or Trudeau or Freeland or anybody or Singh, who whatever, whatever turns you on. But we can't lose sight of what's actually important is what people have suffered and what we can do about it. And regardless of your leaning politically or your belief in climate change and man's contribution to it, all of that stuff can really be backseat to what we have to deal with in the immediate aftermath of things like Fiona, for instance. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's try line number one. Good morning, Leah. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I've been listening to your show, and all the support for the West Coast has been really touching. I'm actually calling um, uh, about a simpler uh, uh, announcement that our family dog has gone missing on the trailhead at Dead Man's Trail um, at Freshwater Bay. Okay. And I'm just calling to let folks know that she may be wandering around the area. She answers to the name Misty, but doesn't have updated tags from Toronto, where she's recently moved from. Um, so we're a bit concerned that we won't be able to track her down. Um, so I'm just letting folks know that a little black, medium-sized, small to medium-sized terrier answering to Misty, very friendly dog. She'll jump in the car if you invite her. And that we have circulated it on um, on social media and Facebook. Um, but if anybody finds her, we really want to get her back. No doubt you do. How old is Misty? She is a rescue. So oh. uh, we think she's, you know, uh, probably eight or ten. She does have some gray in her coat. Um, but she's a very docile, friendly dog. She doesn't have an aggressive bone in her body. Um, and so she would probably, you know, jump into anybody's car. Uh, there was a report that she was possibly picked up, but because her tags aren't updated and she's not microchipped, we're a little bit worried that she's not going to find her way home. Well, fingers crossed we can get Misty home safe and sound. So a black, small to medium-sized terrier, she will indeed answer to Misty and join you and jump in your truck or your vehicle if you invite her. So if you did indeed pick up uh, this little dog then and were unable to find the owners, we know the owners. Leah is one of them. Did you just move from Toronto yourself? Uh, my sister's dog, she's the one who just moved from Toronto. Okay. And I I'm actually have permission to give her cell number, if that's okay. Sure, go right ahead. 
Yeah, uh, my sister's name is Mary, and her cell number is 647-707-0498, and you can call her directly. Let's see if I got this right. 647-707-0498? That's right. Got it. Okay, so if you know where Misty is or you have Misty yourself, please give Mary a call. Uh, Area code 647-707-0498. I'll keep that number on hand. Thanks, Patty. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Leah. Fingers crossed. Take care. You have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right. uh, There you go. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're speaking to you about whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Say good good morning to a good friend of the program, Dr. Janine Hubbard. Dr. Hubbard, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the program. Well, thank you so much, and thank you, as always, for all the support. Um, I know you give the province when they're going through some challenging times, um, and I hear from so many people who really appreciate it. Well, we're happy to do whatever little things we can do here. There's only so much impact we can have, but sharing information and trying to connect people with some supports they need is a big part of the program, and you've been very helpful on that front as well. So welcome back to the show. What are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about what I'm hoping is going to be a really exciting event, a total change in shift and tone, um, happening this Friday evening at, at the Delta. So it is an in-person event, and it's a panel of experts talking about adult ADHD. And it's a free public event, um, and it's in conjunction with a major national uh, healthcare professional uh, conference on ADHD that's happening this weekend. So we've got all kinds of exciting things happening over the next few days. So many people consider ADHD as a predominantly a childhood psychiatric disorder, but yeah. not so. We're learning a lot more about it. Listen, I started grad school in the mid-90s, and that's what we were taught back then. That's not that long ago. Yes, I'm getting old, but I'm not that old. Um, the NRI understanding of ADHD is growing in leaps and bounds, particularly ADHD in women. Um, You know, again, the number of um, individuals who've been diagnosed since the pandemic as kind of, you know, their regular demands have changed and just the multitasking has happened. There's some fascinating research coming out looking at the impact of hormones like perimenopause and menopause in people who maybe had sub-threshold levels of ADHD and it's now coming out as full-blown ADHD. And a lot of it, like I say, if you were a smart, uh, you know, chatty, pleasant, um, helpful girl you, uh, with inattentive ADHD, you didn't get picked up. The diagnosis, you know, again, people, we, th- we think about some of these disorders as, you know, being stereotypical one thing or another. For instance, ADHD, I think a lot of people, if they're at home listening today, think, well, that's that little child buzzing around the classroom like a Tasmanian devil. That's ADHD, but it comes in many different forms. It sure does, and no two individuals with ADHD look alike, um, and it's interesting. So even in adults, that's a prime example of how we thought people outgrew it. Well, you know what? A hyperactive adult isn't buzzing around the office but they may be sitting there clicking on their pen. They may be sitting there uh, doodling in a meeting. They may be showing that impulsivity through online shopping or gambling or substance use. Um, They all, it just starts to shift and look different. And now that we're sort of able to look at people through that lens, that's how we're really understanding far more. Um, But certainly we have lots of people who... um, 
are inattentive and or, you know, can get all the stuff done, but it's at what cost? I would just describe ADHD, particularly in adults when it's been undiagnosed, um, as being like a duck or a swan. On the surface, people think you got it going on. What they're not seeing is the desperate paddling and the late nights and the last-minute deadlines and all the effort that goes in to making it look like it's all happening. Um, and, I mean, we know that undiagnosed ADHD, listen, there, it can have an effect on your lifespan, let alone your employment history, your marital and relationship history, um, or, you know, success, your mental health. We know that it um, really and truly needs to be looked at. Now, we also have some massive gaps in access, and that's one of the things um, we, we're delighted we have CADAC, which is a national advocacy and information group who are going to be at the panel, and they're going to talk about some of the initiatives they're doing nationally um, and hopefully be able to tag on to some things that they can offer for us here locally. How effectively can people manage their ADHD? Oh, it can be treated. It can be managed. Um, it's important to know that it needs to be multimodal treatment. We know medication can be incredibly effective in, you know, somewhere between 70 to 85 percent of people, but it also involves all the behavioral issues um, in terms of sometimes its use of technology, sometimes its use of um, systems and ways to try to help accommodate for it, um, but not labeling it, not identifying it, not being um, kind of, you know, fearful of the stigma, that's in the long run going to be far more harmful for people. Stigma is the big one for me as we try to talk about whatever disorder or ailment or diagnosis. For instance, if 33% of the inmates in the penal system mm. in Canada have ADHD, how do we talk about that without stigmatizing people? Because it's the same thing for many if you say, this person with schizophrenia is dangerous, when in fact that's not necessarily the case. And in large, most, most often it's simply not true. So how do we talk about that while trying to avoid stigmatizing? Well, and I think it's really important. So a stat like the uh, rate of incarceration, uh, in often cases it's not been diagnosed or it has been not well managed or addressed. Uh, but we also know that, as I was saying, um, if you've got ADHD that isn't sort of well managed, let's say, you are far more at risk of things like substance use and addiction. And we know that that can lead to increased levels of incarceration. We know that impulsivity um, can make you sometimes make some not the best choices um, in life. Uh, we also, um, I mean, we see it in kids. The kid with ADHD is not the one starting the uh, misadventures. They're the ones who are easily kind of encouraged, and they're the ones that get caught. Um, so it's not necessarily a reflection of, um, you know, again, malice or malintent. It's often, it's that secondary um, piece with the ADHD not being properly addressed. That does not have to be the trajectory for anyone. Um, but unfortunately for some people, like I say, where it hasn't been well managed or diagnosed or treated, that can be the outcome. What's the impact of ADHD with, say, for instance, uh, mood control, mood swings, for instance, uh, being angry? Well, what we're realizing, again, this is some of this new, uh, more recently developing uh, research, is that emotional dysregulation, and that could be tendencies toward anger or kind of explosive behaviors. Uh, it can also be 
you know, tendency towards, say, tearfulness and that level of emotionality. We're really starting to understand that that is indeed part and parcel of a lot of ADHD. What we've also seen um, is a lot of comorbid anxiety, depression, self-blame, uh, the idea that, well, you know, I'm just lazy, I'm stupid, why does everybody else get this so much easier than I do? Um, and the internalizing and self, um, self-criticism, the, oh, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Um, and the number of negative comments, the stop that, don't do that, listen better, all of those negative messages that uh, can come at people either from externally or internally, we know that can have such a massive impact on um, mood and emotions. Can I inherit ADHD? Because we're now talking about more and more adults being diagnosed and more women than men. But is it something you pass on hereditarily? Absolutely. Uh, We actually know that um, the rate of heritability is about 75% in some cases. So basically, um, if you have uh, ADHD yourself as a parent, you have at least a 50% uh, chance that your child has ADHD. So one of the things that we're seeing, again, as our understanding of adult ADHD is coming along, is we are diagnosing kids um, because, again, uh, teachers and school systems are becoming much more aware of, you know, kind of the red flags that it's not just the hyperactive little boy. And as a result, when the kids are getting diagnosed, we have a conversation with parents um, and sort of say, so who does this resemble? Who does this sound like? Because the odds are so high that one or both parents likely also has ADHD. And we then work with them to get them their diagnosis. And um, it's, uh, you know, working through the grief of, man, my life would have been different if I'd known this at eight, like my kid is, as opposed to at uh, 40. Um, So we know that it has a very, very strong family history. So again, if one member of your family has been diagnosed, it's really important to explore who else in the family may um, also be having some struggles, remembering that, again, it looks different in different people. You know, so it's. I think it's the most prevalent uh, disorder diagnosed in children in the country, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. How do we talk about it in school? Because, you know, there's nothing like a bit of empathy because you understand where someone is coming from, their country of origin, their religious beliefs, their, their family makeup, and or one diagnosis or another. Should we be talking about it in the school? Because some people think, I don't want people to know my child is on a certain pathway, which is a, a curriculum reference in the K-12 system, or that this child is on the spectrum, or this child has ADHD. But when we don't talk about it, then we just create the atmosphere where people think, well, that person's simply an oddball. That person is weird. That person is different from me. on purpose. Um, one of the classic ways we describe ADHD is it's the disconnect between really good intentions and plans and the carry-through. Um, so that it's, um, you know, I know somebody said that they were going to, you know, do their part of the school project and then their classmates are like, well, geez, I can't rely on him. Um, it's that disconnect and understanding that it's not done deliberately. Uh, something else we talk a lot about is uh, time blindness in ADHD, that like periods of time or the ability to estimate how long it's going to take you to do something. Um, is one of the is one of the specific weaknesses in ADHD. So that if you have someone who is chronically late 
for, you know, get-togethers or, you know, the parent who is chronically late picking up the kid and the other parent is looking at them going, come on, where's the reliability? First of all, again, there's that self-esteem hit, but it's that they're not doing it on purpose. Um, they need some techniques to learn how to manage time with reminders and uh, ways to, you know, kind of better estimate time or um, get some red, you know, get some uh, ways so that they are on time. So there are ways to accommodate for it, but also understanding that it's not deliberate and it's not intentional is such a huge step in uh, working with individuals with ADHD. So it's free to attend. It's coming up on Friday, September the 30th, 7.30 p.m. at the Delta Hotel right here in the city in the main ballroom. Uh, anything else you'd like to add before we say goodbye this morning? Uh, we Dr. are Robert? asking people to pre-register just so that we have an idea of numbers. So you can go to apnl.ca or CADAC, C-A-D-D-A-C dot C-A. Um, and again, registration's free. We're just, again, trying to have a better sense of numbers to anticipate so that we can have things uh, set up as appropriately as possible. And if you, the way we're setting it up is it's a panel of psychology, uh, psychiatry, a family physician, um, and an individual with ADHD. Actually, some of our professionals also have ADHD. And um, as I said, a representative from Kadak, and we are open to your questions. If you want to send a question in advance, email it info at apnl.ca, and we really look forward to uh, seeing people Friday night. And that professionally referred to a great friend of mine. Oh, yes. Um, we're beyond delighted. Um, and oh, and I'm moderating the panel, which is going to make for an interesting evening. So wish me luck. Um, but we would love and welcome anyone's questions. Uh, this is an amazing group of experts um, collectively in one room, and we would love to pick their brains and get some information from them. Good luck with the event. Appreciate the time this morning, Dr. Hubbard. Thank you so much, Patty. Really appreciate your time. Anytime. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. It's uh, Dr. Janine Hubbard. She's, of course, a pediatric child adolescent a psychologist. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Amanda's there in the queue. She wants to talk about the tax on sugary drinks. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to the Chief Medical Officer with the Canadian Sport Institute Atlantic. That's Dr. Tina Atkinson. Dr. Atkinson, you're on the air. Hi. Hi there. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So this is Atlantic Concussion Awareness Week, and your group is offering a, a webinar called A Conversation on Concussion. Before we get into some of the details surrounding it, I often wonder, because as a former athlete and someone who's had a concussion, you know, it used to be we got our bell rung, and you just got back in action, and you went back out on the ice. We know a lot more about it now, but the conversation to me is sort of like when we talk about bullying. Bullying has been a catch-all, and it doesn't necessarily describe what would be like a physical assault. With concussion, it kind of feels and sounds a little bit innocuous, but what we're talking about is a traumatic brain injury. Do you think it's a difference in how we talk about it if we called it a brain injury versus simply a concussion? Yes, I, it, it's hard. It's a, it is <laughs> confusing to people with the, the wording for sure, and I, I do think that it makes a difference what we call it. So concussion is really a subset of, of what would be considered a mild traumatic brain injury. So Excuse me. There are different degrees of, of uh, or different severities of brain injury, and concussion is definitely in the mild range. Um, you know, it, it concussion. The word itself indicates a temporary uh, change. You know, from an injury to your brain, 
but as you said, we know a lot more about concussion these days. So we know that getting your bell rung is actually a concussion. Um, concussions can go away very quickly in a matter of hours, or the symptoms can last for days to months. So there is quite a, a big spectrum and variety there, and, and it is important, what we call it, for people to take it seriously. In organized sports, there's a real, real attention given to this. Coaches and managers and trainers are given all the signs to look out for, so then we implement the concussion protocols. But you can do it to yourself, whether it be fall off your bike or take a wipeout as a downhill skier or something or other. What are some of the key symptoms people need to be mindful of? Yes, absolutely. Lots of different mechanisms of uh, injury to get a concussion. Um, So the main symptom is usually people get a headache. Uh, This can happen right away or within a few hours. Uh, uh, Often people, my patients don't always describe it as a headache, though. I think they're expecting it to be a real severe headache. It isn't always that. Uh, It often is just a a period of confusion, feeling unwell just you feel off Uh, a lot of people if you see them at the moment they get kind of a blank stare they look a little out of it Um, and and then dizziness and uh, memory problems um, just feeling confused those are the most common in a more severe case you would be knocked out and lose consciousness briefly Um, I, I often see people though who do lose consciousness that actually don't feel that bad once they sort of wake up and it might be because they don't remember the incident not, we're not really sure. Uh, that's something that we just, a lot of us that do concussion work, notice. Um, and that's actually a dangerous situation because they feel pretty good and they want to go back into their sport. So, you know, the concussion protocols are important. And even if you if you injure and you're on an individual sport or you're doing a recreational activity, it is important to still follow the protocol. Absolutely. You know, it used to be some sort of badge of honor or how tough I was because I was able to go back out on the ice when, in fact, we're now figuring out that that is probably the dumbest thing we could ever do. It's it's really a misnomer, and I'm of that uh, age as well. I I played rugby at university, and and, uh, we were told, you know, you, you get back in there. And I, I have been a uh, doctor for hockey and, and uh, other contact sports for a long time, and I'm, I'm all about being tough and, you know, playing through injuries that you could play through, but concussion is not one of them. One of the uh, things we used to talk about when someone was indeed concussed was don't let them go to sleep. Was there anything ever to that? Not really, honestly. Um, You know, we don't really tell people that anymore, but what we do want is for someone to be with you. So what you need to look for is that someone's level of consciousness is decreasing. Um, But certainly we want people to sleep right away. Uh, It is is good to, we never want someone to go home by themselves, though, in case, it's really in the case of a more traumatic injury, such as a brain bleed, where they might gradually start to get worse and worse and worse and and lose uh, consciousness. So uh, we don't tell moms and dads to wake their kids up anymore, but we do tell them to go in and check on them and make sure that, you know, they're breathing and, and they're they're okay. Where did you play rugby? Just curious. At Acadia. Uh, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't a varsity sport yet, but... Uh, cool. Yeah, it was, uh, it, you know, in a great sport, but at the time we didn't know anything about concussion, and, and uh, I remember girls on my teams getting concussed, and and no one really taking care of them, to be honest. So it, it really, as when I went to med school, that was one of the uh, 
issues I was always interested in, and, and then eventually I, I got into doing sport medicine full-time. Yeah, me and one of my boys played as well. Brilliant sport. But even if you watch uh, even at the international men or women's level, the immediate implementation of the head injury assessment is so important. So we can learn lessons from these big international scenes and players and teams because they got it figured out because they know what the lifelong implications will be. You know, a couple of friends of mine, they lost their hockey careers. One of them as a professional hockey player because of the combination of the cumulative effect of concussions. So is that about the frequency or is it about, you know, being repeatedly concussed in a short time frame? What leads to those types of decisions? It's, it, it can be both. So a concussion is a very individual injury. Every, every person that has a concussion, can, their course of recovery can be different from the other. And actually, each concussion you have can be different with different symptoms, different time of recovery. Uh, so we take into account both things. The, the, main, the biggest one is you never want someone to hit their head just after they've already had a concussion. Uh, you don't want to get a concussion on top of another concussion. Uh, that can be devastating, and unfortunately, around the world, we've seen athletes in certain sports that have actually died because of that. It's called second impact syndrome. That's quite rare, but what does happen is the cumulative effects if you're not fully recovered from the first concussion. Um, then there is the case that sometimes people have one concussion, and it, it's just more the symptoms persist for a long, long time. So we do take into account the severity of each one. If you're getting worse every time you get a new one, or if you've had several within a short amount of time. But there's no specific number anymore. We just we look at it on a case-by-case basis. And, we, you know, people, we can wear helmets, whether it be on your skateboard or scooter or bike or skiing or hockey players or what have you. How important is it the additional measures, things like wearing a mouth guard? Uh, you know, honestly, that's a hard question to answer. There's oh. a lot of research going into that. We do, we do think there is some protective effect, uh, but we don't know how much and... You know, as a, con- a helmet doesn't actually prevent a concussion, but it definitely prevents a much more severe injury, such as a brain bleed. Uh, so all those things are safety measures to try to make it as safe as possible. But you can't you can't rely on just one of those or two of those. You have to you have to uh, do what is happening in all the contact sports is uh, you know more safety measures in practice. Uh, the, the referees, new rules, calling the plays, you know, making sure you can make it as safe as possible within the sport. Yeah, because it's your brain rattling around. You can have a helmet on, but then meet the um, immovable force like the boards, for instance, as a hockey player, and concussion quite possible. How and where can I uh, sign up for this webinar if I'm so inclined? So uh, there's lots of posts on social media, and uh, you can sign up on the website, atlanticconcussion.ca, and uh, uh, actually, you better check that. It might be Concussion Atlantic. <laughs> um, but it's a register, just a register so we know how many people are on. You can submit a question ahead of time. Uh, and it's, it's excellent that we have participation from all four Atlantic provinces this year. And it, this will be a yearly event. And we hope to touch on different aspects of concussion each year. So really excited, and and I'm always happy to get the word out about concussion awareness. And I actually have the webinar uh, address. It's concussionatlantic.ca. And one of my friends at Sport Newfoundland Labrador, Doug Halliday, you can also uh, reach out to him with any questions about the webinar. And his email address is a simple one. It's dhalliday at gov.nl.ca. Good to have you on the show, Dr. Atkinson. Thank you for having me. Take good care.
You too. All right, bye-bye. It's Dr. Tina Atkinson, Chief Medical Officer with the Canadian Sport Institute Atlantic. Uh, Amanda dropped out. I think she was anticipating coming on. Is she able to come back on? Hopefully so. We want to talk about the sugary tax with Amanda, and Don's also there talking about the ferry system. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one, Don, you're on the air. Good morning. Morning. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Thanks. How about you? Uh, not too good, not doing too bad. I, uh, I heard you talking to a couple of doctors there. I'm not, a, I'm not a doctor by no means, but I know that our health system is, uh, is not, uh, not very good. Um, I, myself, uh, I left the health science back in June month with a, after doing a 12-hour surgery. And I was told uh, by my surgeon that Central Health was sending a nurse to my home to do my dressing the following Friday. And that Friday hasn't showed up yet. And, and better still, like uh, we know, there's a long wait in emergencies for after hours to see doctors or nurses. And we've been waiting to see a nurse ever since June. We got no nurse. And, uh, and uh, so uh, the health care in our Little community is not very good. Uh, what community are we talking about, sir? I mean, uh, Change Islands. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we know out in that region, it's the first time in well over a century there hasn't been a family doctor on Fogo Island. So we hear these stories all the time. Government will tell you that they're doing everything they possibly can to recruit and, most importantly, retain healthcare professionals. But where are they? Exactly. Where, where are they? And, and, uh, and this morning, you know, like, uh, I got, I'm, actually, I got to run to the, getting the ferry lineup. I got to go to Fogo for a video conference call with, with my doctor in St. John's. And if we had a nurse at our clinic today, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have to uh, go to Fogo. But now, and, uh, so I got to go to Fogo and get in the lineup. Probably be six or seven hours before I can get back. But uh, that's not a big issue. I know that there are lots, there are lots of problems in our in our in our, uh, our province this past weekend. I know like, over on the Southwest Coast. I mean, waiting for appointment is, is nothing compared to what they're going through. But this morning, I just talked about myself and our community at, at large, and we we are we are a community of senior citizens. A majority of people in our community is 68 plus, and you know we got no nurse. Uh, we did have, uh, we had a nurse, uh, but uh, due to circumstances, she had to take time off. And uh, she hasn't been, been replaced, and no one, uh, no one has been here. And to make uh, matters worse, uh, we went from a 70-car ferry down to to a 28, and all summer long we did good because we had to, we had a small boat and, and a bigger one. But the bigger boat is off due to mechanical reasons, and now we're down to... Uh, down to a 28-passenger ferry for Fogo and Change Islands. And uh, last week, all of a sudden, they had a second crew in place. And this morning, uh, due to late the crossings last night, the Beaumont could not leave this morning until 10 o'clock. And every hour with appointments and people in lineups. And, you know, it's uh, very frustrating. Yeah, of course it is. So what was the case, uh, and when did your nurse leave? Oh no, that's fine. Yeah. No. But, uh, but I mean, she was a, she was a one of one of the best nurses that probably that sent for out of uh, you know. I mean, they're all good. Don't get me wrong. But uh, she she loved the place and she wasn't she you know her home her home was not too far from Change Islands and and actually she had a home on Change Islands and but she left and she should have been replaced. Hey? 
But uh, yeah. but uh, it's uh, but we've been waiting all summer for a nurse to come for even for a couple of days a week, and we can't even get that. Did you say that you're going to Fogo Island to uh, participate in a virtual appointment? I am, yes. Uh, I'm just out of curiosity, is it not possible to do it from your own home on Change Islands? Uh, no, because uh, well, if I do it, I do it to the clinic. But uh, but uh, but uh, well, I could I've, I've went to the clinic and done it, but we got no we got no no secretary at the clinic, and we got no nurse, so uh, I couldn't I couldn't go to the clinic. I got to go to Fogo. Okay. Understood. And, you know, for people who, even if it's proximity to the next closest clinic, it just gets even more complicated when you talk about the fact you got to use the provincial ferry system to even and get I, to where I don't know where our MHA, Derek Bragg, is doing this, but uh, I, don't hear, I don't hear from him, I don't see him, and, uh, and I don't hear him in the media, and I guess probably he's working behind the scenes, but and on the local level the same. Uh, I know I'm sure they're doing their best. But, uh, and, and I'm, I'm sure Fogo is, is fighting behind the scenes because they got a vast uh, 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 amount of traffic, eh? Understood. I appreciate the time this morning. Don, I wish you well. And, uh, yeah, like I wish I had more time, but I got to run for the ferry. But I'll, I will get back to you again. Okay, sounds good. Okay, bye-bye. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Amanda, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Doing okay this morning. How about you? Good. I'm calling about the sugar test. I noticed yesterday, um, I do Instacart, and I was shopping for a customer, and it was a person with a couple of kids going to school, so I obviously knew I was picking up a bunch of, like, lunch stuff and that. Um, when I went to the checkout, I noticed she did have, like, a lot of um, fruit juices, little juice boxes and everything for her kids for school. But when, so I really kind of wanted to pay attention to the sugar test because I was curious how much she would get taxed with the sugar test buying all these juice boxes and fruit juices and stuff for breakfast and lunches. So when I got to the checkout and left, um, of course, the customer gets a copy of the receipt, but we keep the main receipt. So I stopped and I went through all the sugar tax and I added it up. And the sugar tax was four dollars and something cents that she got taxed upon the HFC, which was fifteen dollars. But then when I was looking at the NL sugar tax, I noticed NL uh, bottle deposit, I think it is, or something like that. Yep. And I added that up. And that was another four dollars and something cents. So altogether, between an NL taxes for bottle deposit and sugar tax, she got taxed an extra eight dollars, almost nine dollars, on top of the fifteen. But on the bottom of the receipt, it only shows HST. It do not add up and calculate everything that was like the sugar tax or the bottle deposit tax. Well, bottle deposit has long been built in, and for my understanding, has never been itemized on a bill. But I've seen a lot of receipts that did have the sugar tax broke out, broken out, but not on that one. That's that's interesting. Yeah, this was Walmart. It only showed the HSP. Like it okay. showed um, on the like next to the item, oh, it was like forty cents or whatever. But it did not show at the bottom of the receipt how much it was all together. So then I also noticed um, it was a Nesquik um, 
syrup. So, like, you could put them in, like, milkshakes or on top of ice cream. And particularly next to that, I didn't think it was going to be a sugar tax on it. It was almost a $2 sugar tax on that item in particular. What I think is really grinding a lot of people is they thought that one product or another was exempt because the government told us it was exempt, and they're still paying a sugar tax on it. And the one that will always pop into my mind immediately when we talk about this issue is some people buy the powdered product. You know, in this case, it's powdered iced tea. You can stretch it out. You can dilute it a little bit. You can save a little bit of money. A lot of people will take that option. There's one particular mm-hmm. package of powdered iced tea that costs $7.29. The sugar tax on it is $6.20. <laughs> I mean... That's unbelievable. That's wild. And I wanted to call in just because, say if you got someone who is on social assistance or, like, someone like, I know I have family members, I have friends that are, like, you know, they're on a tight budget. They're a single parent. They're on a tight budget. So that $8 in taxes that, or $4 in taxes, $5 in taxes, however much it may be, that could actually go towards something for their kids for lunch, for school. And I really think the sugar tax is nothing but a tax cut. That's what a lot of people think about it, Amanda. I'm glad you made time for the program. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. And the one bit about that issue, and of course people don't like it uh, by and large, it may indeed encourage some different decisions when people shop for a beverage but the one thing that repeatedly gets thrown at me when we talk about it is you know the greatest thirst quencher is water and i don't dispute it i drink a lot of water in the course of a day mostly because i don't stop talking but not everybody has access to clean water we can't forget that and you know you think about it there's more there's some projects that are ongoing to alleviate communities need for boil order advisories but there's over 160 of them in the province. 160 board order advisories. And some of them have been in place for years. Some of them for decades. So it's not quite as simple as, well, just drink water. Because if it was, then we really wouldn't have much of a problem, would we? Water is becoming such a precious commodity. It always has been. But access to clean drinking water, even in the country, it's not what it once was. We're in pretty good shape here for access to fresh water here in this province. But they're even traded like a commodity on stock markets. I mean, Unbelievable. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? When we come back, we're speaking with you about whatever you want to talk about. Do not go away. Welcome back. So we just talked with uh, Amanda about the additional tax people are paying on variety of beverages, 20 cents a liter. And, of course, it's not being correctly applied uh, if we're led to believe the exemptions were what we were told they were. And someone really in a very harshly worded email uh, asking me why I'm so opposed to the NDP agricultural critic, which uh, this person is named uh, Alistair McGregor. He's going to table a motion before the committee meeting tomorrow to propose a parliamentary probe into the prices uh, we're being charged in the grocery store. And the suggestion is, why wouldn't I be fully behind this? Look, to understand where we are and how we got there is always important to me anyway. And the person is right in saying, well, inflation at 7%. The increase in the price of groceries on the average is 10.8% year over year. So my question would be, how exactly does any of this work? Like if it's to examine the impact of inflation and the fact that their quarterly profits have gone up year over year, somewhere as much as 3.5%, which is nothing to sneeze at, is how do we determine 
what constitutes excessive profit. That's my only point here, is because we can look at what's going on, but you know, in every industry, there's going to be profit, or you would hope the people who are involved in the industry would be hoping to show a profit. But when do we say, well, that's too much? That's the only question I would ask. Like in the banking business, well, I guess you know some industries are regulated, whether it be telecom or banking or insurance, what have you. But how, what, what does the question look like? The banks make so much money, so is there a parliamentary probe into controlling bank fees? I mean, I know that there was pledges regarding my telecom bill and what have you, but who's going to be the arbiter of determining what is the ceiling for profit for one company, one industry or another, before there's an applicable additional tax? I don't know the answer to that question. So I know what Mr. McGregor is trying to achieve here because it's important. It's easy enough when we blame global supply chains and the Bank of Canada and the pandemic support monies uh, and the price of gas and all that impact that it does have and carbon tax, whatever you want to include in it, because in combination they all play a role here. But what gets kind of left out here, especially when we talk about opposition parties to whether it be the province and or the federal government, is how do we factor in what's going on in the pricing world? Because it's obviously, obviously the price tag includes the profit margin, but again, I don't dispute Mr. McGregor's heart's in the right place. I just wonder how we actually frame a question that gets any sort of parliamentary probe committee question answered. What is the question? Is how much are you making? And when is too much? When is it going to be deemed to be too much? Okay. Someone also just asked me uh, if there are any other opportunities. We spoke with Dave Andrews from the Freightway Transportation. They're going to stop their collections at 27 Duffy and at 1121 uh, Kemmel Road because they're just overrun, overwhelmed, which is the good news. There is another drop-off opportunity coming up here on Thursday. So this emailer says, where can I drop off? Has a lot of men's clothes in particular that you'd like to donate. That's at Akita Equipment. Their shop, their yard or office is out by Patty's Plant. So if you do indeed want to continue making the donations and you've got some, whether it be clothing or dry goods or baby formula or bottled water, whatever the case may be, our good buddy Chris is uh, at uh, Akita. He's going to be making a run across the island of Port of Basque as well. They should be arriving on Friday. So there are a lot of different people stepping up, different organizations and companies. Like you heard Dave Andrews rhyme off a bunch of corporate interests, our corporate uh, corporations, or companies that have stepped up to make his trailer as full as it was. And they're going to be loading up another one. It's just amazing stuff. Then it apparently is controversial in some corners that the province is choosing to help in this circumstance, but maybe hasn't helped in past circumstances where people were flooded out, for instance. You know, I, I don't find myself in a place where I begrudge anybody a bit of support here because the devastation is just so unbelievable that I don't think the province has a whole lot of choice here but to do what they can to support folks who have lost everything. And that's the thing here. Like, when my basement floods out, uh, flooded out and I had to go make an insurance claim and get service master to come in and the headache and heartache and frustration that we went through it never once occurred to me that the government should pick up the bill but when you have communities that have been leveled and if you're looking at simply in Port of Basque alone if there are somewhere bare minimum 76 properties that are either gone demolished swept out to sea or simply are unlivable then the cost to support people to have alternative forms of housing and how that looks and who provides it. I think if you add up the costs over 12 months or 60 months, it's probably much easier for government to get involved and try to support them to rebuild. 
it you know I've also heard the implication of, well maybe sh this is the opportunity to, to have people move well you know picking up on the worst moments of their life to put that into the conversation is probably ill-timed to say the very least and the cost of the cost-benefit analysis the getting involved here I just think it makes all the sense in the world that someone has to do something and in this case who else can do it but the provincial and federal governments and you know what the support looks like when we spoke with Minister O'Regan yesterday what federal government support looks like we're not entirely sure because I've been asked that repeatedly what is the, what are the feds actually doing beyond selling uh, sending about a hundred uh, Canadian reservists from three different pl uh, platoons that's going to be helpful that might not be all they can do but until there's more careful assessments done I don't even know if they know what the package might look like or how quickly the uh, funds can flow but the province can be a bit more nimble on that front so once people go through the actual insurance process because even if you want to be eligible for provincial support here you're going to have to go through the insurance company process anyway to file your claim and then we'll find out who has what kind of coverage whether you be completely uninsured or underinsured so until those things happen it's probably going to be virtually impossible for the province to step in with a specific dollar amount but if you want to take that on we can do exactly that uh, and then of course the people who need to be help need some help navigating this whole process what I thought was just an outstanding show of support was coming from Moro Moro and Crosby Law and this is not to give them free advertising but when people do good things in a timely fashion just in an effort to help I'm happy enough to talk about it so Judy Morrow if you need to speak with a lawyer about your policy and what our next steps here because some people this is daunting you know it's one thing you get into a car accident and you have an adjuster come by and uh, look at the vehicle you get a couple of quotes at the body shop or you submit the claim and away you go when you've lost everything it's a much more complicated process and so it's going to be really quite helpful for, for with someone who's gone through it many times as a professional that being Judy Morrow you can reach out to her and get those types of supports all right we're on the Twitter box we're VOCM open line follow us there email address is openline at VOCM.com but when we come back from this news break you would have picked up the phone if you're in the St. John's metro region and dial 273-5211 or anywhere else it's toll free long distance 1-888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Glenn, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How you doing? Doing okay. How you doing? Uh, actually, yesterday, there was on the social media, there was, um, I'm trying to, zero in on getting packages to port of bass and there are a lot of people in central that i haven't been able to come up with the drop-off center where we could drop it because i waited for the truck yesterday i was there about half hour early that's according to the time that was given on social media and then i was there for an hour but I had to leave again with the package aboard my car so if there was somewhere where we could drop off there's a lot of people there at the time the bishop falls irving there in trans canada so if there was somewhere we can drop off. It would make it much simpler to make sure our packages get to uh, where it's supposed to go. Absolutely. I wasn't aware of any specific drop-off sites in Central yesterday. I tried to look around and find as many as I could, whether it be at St. David's Anglican Church in Pasadena or the two locations here in town. I could not find anything in Central where someone had a formalized drop-off spot so that generous folks in your region could make their donations. I don't know where to point you. I wish I did. No, 
Absolutely. So that's why I just made the quick call to you, Patty. Maybe there's someone uh, listening in your audience who just give us uh, some indication uh, as to where we can go with all the churches so on around. There should be a, a spot in one of the gyms or gymnasiums or something where, you know, where we can uh, drop this off and, and make sure it gets over there. Because we do have quite a number of packages. There were quite a few people that were out of stop yesterday at the, as I said, on the uh, Irving um, Trans-Canada Beach Falls, and, and everybody was just waiting, you know, so... Uh, if we had a drop-off spot, it would make it so simpler. So that's why I called this morning. Well, let's put that message out there. So anyone in and around the central portion of the island, if you've got somewhere where the folks can make their drop-offs, whether it be you know, organized through a church group or a service group or something, you want to get formally involved so that we can have a central location for drop-off and then we can organize the transportation after the fact, please let us know that you're willing to do it. We can spread the word here on this program. All they have to do is send me a note or give me a call, whatever they choose, and we'll make sure that we can organize it as best we can as soon as we can. Okay, Patty. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that this morning. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Glenn. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, we did indeed. Oh, I, I looked around as best I could to try to find uh, where people were setting up formal drop-off options, and we've been broadcasting them when we get the pieces of information. So if you know of somewhere, whether it be in Grand Falls, Windsor, Gander, Bishop's Falls, whatever the case may be, if you know where people can go, we're happy to spread that particular word. Let's keep going. L- line number two. Good morning, Dennis O'Keefe. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Not too bad this morning. How about you? Uh, pretty good, but pretty good, I must say. Life is goes on, let's put it that way. Yeah, right? fair ball. And you take the ups and the downs. So, Fanny, I just want to mention three things this morning briefly. Uh, one is, uh, you, you probably know about the Boston Tea Party. Yeah, I know what it is. It's, yeah, it's, and how it precipitated the revolution in uh, the United States, and it was all about taxing tea and the colonists. Remember that? Yeah, I you do. don't remember, but you know about it. I do know about it, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think the sugar tax is in that category. I, I think this this is a tipping point that, you know, this is a ridiculous tax on people. And uh, as I said to you before, it's only a tax grab. And the Liberal government might very well uh, go read up on the Boston Tea Party and, and uh, get some knowledge on what happens when you tax people unfairly how about that the, uh, I think it's <laughs> it, it's quite the uh, analogy to bring to the show this morning the Boston <laughs> Tea that. Party the revolution based on legislation to tax tea and yeah. I think it was the British East Indies Company I believe if I'm not mistaken this is back in the yeah. 1700s right so, so it's all there's there's certainly uh, some differences there there might be some overlap but fair ball I don't know if we're going to see revolutionary measures on this one the biggest problem for with this particular issue Doc is that you know, there's a couple of things. On the floor of the House of Assembly, they were talking about any monies coming in would be dedicated to new programs. That didn't happen. Right. It went to existing programs, which is not a bad thing to support Kids Eat Smart or pediatric supports and all those. I, I get it. But they even say some of the quiet parts out loud insofar as, you know, we think it's going to change people's purchasing habits and what they drink and what they consume. But they also, at the exact same time, forecast bringing in about $9 million a year. So it's kind of both ways, right, isn't it? So I'm yeah, not really sure about this I one. Think, yeah, and I think I mentioned to you before that uh, if they really wanted to look at encouraging people to eat healthy products, rather than taxing 
the uh, the product that might have a lot of sugar in it. They should have looked at taking the tax off some of the products that are very, very healthy and encouraging people to buy them in that way. Picking winners and losers is a tricky piece of governmental business. I mean, I know where you're coming from, and whether it be about the price of a two-liter of milk or other fresh produce and fruit and what have you, but that's where I think we we should be a little bit careful about suggesting government get directly involved in picking winners and losers. That's a just, where does that end? That would be the conversation. I think it's very similar to the conversation of where does a tax on sugary products end? Do, will we see that in the cereal aisle, for instance? Because awful lot of sugar in some of those products. Oh, you got that right. You know, yeah, so it, no it, doubt. they're both tricky areas. For me, it has worked in some form in some jurisdictions, but what I think makes the most sense, if we're going to... Uh, if we're going to promote consuming less sugar, maybe, just maybe, if the products had less sugar. So what they did in the UK is they put an incentive mm. or a penalty in place for the manufacturers to lower their sugar content. If they didn't, yep. they paid the price, not the consumer. So that makes a bit more sense to me is to, number one, effectively label products so people actually know what they're buying and know what they're consuming. And if we want less sugar and stuff, let's put it on the, uh, the end where people manufacture it and distribute it, not to the people who go to the store and buy it because... We're just making, that's a guessing game as to whether or not anyone, anyone's going to make different choices. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, the other thing, Petty, is do you know who's doing the environmental assessment on the hydrogen project out on the West Coast? Yeah, it, it, is it other than the province? Well, the, 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 the environmental assessment, is that being done by the province or is it being done by a private company or... Well, I, I think there was a bunch of different questions that the province was asking. I believe the onus would then fall to World Energy GH2 to bring in someone who's accredited, a, a professional, to answer the questions, whether it be with migratory routes for caribou or flora and fauna, uh, all of these types of assessments. I guess the onus would be on the company to provide the documentation and then to be verified by the government. I suppose that's the process as it normally would work, isn't it, Dennis? Well, but uh, the only thing is I'd like for somebody, be it John Risley or the provincial government, just to give the public that information. Who is doing this environmental assessment? Because that's really, really important to know. Okay, so let me just uh, take that one step further. What if the answer was, well, it's Environmental Assessment Incorporated 1974 Limited. What do we do with that info? Do we just well, have an opportunity we, to see their track record? And is that what yeah, we're getting at? Well, first of all, we, know, we need to know that it's a reliable company and a company that is accredited to do that uh, that kind of assessment, and we need to know who's paying for it. Okay, uh, a fair question. Yeah. I can probably get an answer to that. Okay. Lastly, Patty, is uh, the situation out on the southwest coast in Port of Basque. Uh, I'm going to step into something now, I know, but I'm going to suggest it anyhow. Uh, the city of St. John's has a uh, a good reputation in the past of helping devastated communities. And I go back to when I was on council and when I was mayor, uh, incidents like uh, you might remember the uh, the severe ice storm in Quebec many years ago. Yep. And the orphanage down, I think, down in the West Indies that was operated by... Uh, a family from Newfoundland, Labrador, and I think there was a hurricane involved. And I just forget the situation, but uh, the city actually financially helped restore that orphanage so that the kids there 
could be taken care of and get back to having an education. So here we have the devastation out in Port of Basque and in the southwest coast, and I think it's an opportunity for the city to to take the lead and to help financially if 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 they can, and I know they can uh, financially and start the ball rolling in that direction. I suppose whoever can help, whatever community or organization, whatever they have the capacity to do, they probably should very, give it very careful consideration at this moment. But do you think that the real support dollar, the go-to entities would and should be the federal and provincial governments before we need anyone else to step up? Do you think that's the case? Because individuals will make donations. I know people have been very generous since Saturday with the yeah. horrific uh, images we saw. So do you think it begins and ends with the federal and provincial government, though, Doc? No. No, I think there's an opportunity here for uh, other municipalities right across Newfoundland and Labrador to help out and to help out financially. And I think the ball might get started if the city decided that they were going to give a financial uh, contribution to to relieving the devastation that happened out because of uh, out on the west coast because of Hurricane Fiona, and it might be a donation could could go to the Salvation Army uh, to go toward the situation out on the southwest coast. I mean, it'll be up to the city to decide how to how to direct it and where to direct it. And we did that in the past in, in I mentioned two incidents, but there were more than two where we took the lead, uh, donated, and actually uh, identified where the money was going to go uh, to ensure that it was spent in the proper way. Yeah, and I don't know what they will do. I will add to that conversation, though. The Canadian Red Cross, I only say that because you, people donate however they want. It's not up to me to, to determine what you do with your hard-earned money. But when it comes to the Canadian Red Cross in this example, we'll get it matched. So just an opportunity yeah. to see it doubled is not a bad consideration for people to give some thought to. I appreciate the time this morning, Doc. Yeah, the other thing, Patty, the, uh, the city, in fact, donated a vehicle uh, to the Red Cross, and that was also... Uh, when I was mayor, I do believe. So, I mean, look, the devastation is there, the opportunity is there, and the city could get the ball rolling. And you mentioned that ice storm. That extended into the Ottawa Valley, too, right into my wife's hometown of Cornwall, because she was there. She was actually there with Nicholas. He was a baby at the time, and they were stuck in that ice storm, so I remember that pretty clearly. Yeah, and I think our contribution there was $50,000, and Andy Wells was mayor at the time. Very good. That's years ago, but I do remember because I had family involved. Uh, appreciate your call this morning, Doc. Take care. Thanks, Paddy. You look after yourself. Will do, sir. Okay. okay bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, when we come back, Sharon wants to tell us about a run they're doing across the province tomorrow. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line one. Sharon, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. It's Shannon. Actually, Shannon Lehman calling my, in. From my apologies. Transport. Shannon Lehman, welcome to the show. Did you said Guardian Transportation? Yes. Okay. So I'm calling you now. Um, we've actually got a, we're organizing uh, a truck that's going to be heading out to Corner Brook uh, tomorrow morning. So in uh, coordination with Raven News, Wink, Women in uh, Networking Kindness, and the Salvation Army in both Corner Brook and Port of uh, we're collecting donated supplies and clothing uh, all along the way. We have multiple stops starting in St. John's uh, tomorrow morning from 7 a.m. to 8.30 at the crossroads there in Donovan. 
And we'll be um, stopping at all different locations right across, right until Corner Brook. We arrive in Corner Brook tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Where are you stopping? Give us some idea where, where you will be stopping along the road, because we just had a caller from Central Glen looking for somewhere where he can make his donation in Central. So where would, give us some idea some of the places you'll be pulling in. So the list of places, uh, after we leave St. John's, we'll be stopping at the Whitburn Irving um, at around 9.15 a.m., uh, then it's the Goobies Irving, Clarenville Irving, Eastport Junction, Gander Irving, Lewisport Junction, Bishop Falls Irving, Badger Irving, Eddie's in Southbrook, the Bayver Junction Restaurant, Deer Lake North Atlantic, and the Corner Brook Pin Scale. Terrific. Listen, if it's possible, Shannon, would you be able to send me an email with those details and maybe some approximate times? Because inevitably someone's going to ask me those questions. Absolutely. And I've actually got the press release um, already drafted up that I'm going to send out as soon as we get off the uh, get off the line. OK, so because so um, there there's certain items, obviously, that they're really looking for right now. Um, and I have the list here, so like water, toilet paper, blankets, uh, personal hygiene pro- uh, products, baby food, some non-perishable food items, and some new and used clothing. Now, they're, they've got a lot of clothing uh, so far, but they are asking that if anyone is donating clothing, if they can put it into a box and mark on the box if it's women's clothing, uh, what size it is, small, medium, large. Because you can imagine, Patty, if you put men's, women's, and kids in one box and it's not labeled, I mean, they're they're getting so much stuff over there, they won't be able to sort through it, right? Absolutely. The more labeling we can do, the less of the sorting we'll be forced to do on the other end. So, Shannon, I really appreciate what you're doing. And uh, if you can, please do indeed include my email address to the news release so I can get some approximate times and locations because... No question. People will be saying, I didn't hear, I didn't catch that part, Patty. Where are they stopping at Bishop's Falls? So my email address is an easy one. It's simply openline at vocm.com. Perfect. All right. I'll get it sent off to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for this. Good luck. Thanks. Bye-bye. You're welcome. That's uh, Shannon Lima with Guardian Transportation. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's uh, Andrew Fury. Premier Fury, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm hanging in there. How about you? Uh, not too bad. By uh, down here uh, speaking with people, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty emotional. It's pretty uh, tragic uh, for so many of uh, the people of Southwest Coast. It's uh, difficult to put in words. Well, I think I speak for everybody who was watching the uh, horrific images, videos, and pictures from over the weekend. It was terrifying, absolutely terrifying, and equally heartbreaking. Uh, the province is going to step up for those who are un- uninsured or underinsured to help them to rebuild. How do you determine what types of events like this that the province steps up and does these types of things, for instance? Because that's some of the questions that I'm getting is, what constitutes provincial support for these types of events? Is it the severity of it? Is the numbers of people impacted? How do you adjudicate whether or not to get involved to this extent? Yeah, sure. So there's precedent for for it before, Patty, uh, when you look at the Badger floods. And, uh, you know, we have to look at each event uh, individually, um, uh, unfortunately, but there is precedent in the past. And uh, this is uh, no question a significant extreme weather event that has displaced, you know, numerous people, uh, up to 80 homes in the Porter Basque area alone that we know of today. 
and rising uh, ha- will be uh, impacted and uninhabitable. So, uh, you know, it, as, as a government, we need to be there uh, in combination with all levels of government to support these people who have been uh, displaced from their homes. And uh, I think that's the message that we want to get out to ensure that people know that, uh, that their governments, uh, plural, will be there to support them. I don't know what appropriate timing means when we talk about next steps here, but when we're talking about rebuilding, what kind of focus should we be applying to how we rebuild and where we rebuild? Because, you know, when these communities were settled, the obvious location yeah. was close by the, the sea because that's where your fishing stage was or whatever the case may yep, be. No but now we're understanding more and more about the associated risks, especially insurance companies are understanding the associated risks. So how do we have that conversation? Because people don't necessarily want to be told what to do, but when we have governmental support and insurance company implications, we have to ha- include that. Of course. And, you know, people are ready for that discussion, especially as they recognize uh, climate change and the increasing severity and frequency of these extreme weather events. Um, and those will be important discussions that need to be had uh, as we uh, rebuild. So, you know, when you rebuild, you, you need to rebuild stronger. You need to rebuild with uh, the consideration for mitigation of these extreme weather events. And Already after talking to people on the ground here, they they understand that. And frankly, they, they want that uh, in, in this conversation and this plan moving forward. So as we move into that stage of recovery, that will be uh, an important consideration because, as you suggested, I mean, our, our province is beautiful for, and for the historic and cultural reasons of why we why we settled uh, this, the fishing the stages, the homes close to the stages that have been passed and down through generations even. And uh, an event like this, uh, you know, uh, heightens the awareness that in the modern day, uh, with the uh, increasing frequency of these events, uh, then perhaps that needs uh, more uh, consideration. And this is an opportune time for the people of the southwest coast uh, to build that into the plans uh, to rebuild. Emergency preparedness, sometimes we talk about it after the fact. I don't know how good a job we actually do on it, for instance. Like, like when we had Snowmageddon, we didn't really have a real understanding of collaboration between municipalities or what sort of private sector equipment was out there. If you had your druthers, which you do as the premier, what more do we have to do on emergency preparedness? Because we don't always know what the forecast or how accurate will be. This was way worse than we thought it would be. Yeah, so that's a perpetual feedback loop, uh, of course. You know, you prepare, uh, then you try to mitigate. Well, you mitigate, then try to prepare, and then there's the event, and then you feedback. Um, so, you know, there's lessons learned from Snowmageddon. There's lessons learned uh, from other natural disasters, and there's always ways to improve, um, especially with respect to the with, the with the preparation piece, as you suggested. Uh, right now, though, here on the ground, uh, we have learned lessons from the past, and uh, one of the uh, one of the problems in an, in the acute phase of a response like this is uh, communication across governments. And uh, we have set up as a province a central command center here in Port of Basque where everybody will be flowing through them. So uh, the, that incident response team uh, and, the, and the person in charge of that will be responsible for uh, triaging and, and, uh, and uh, deploying resources, if you will. So it's, it's not left uh, solely to the municipalities and the volunteer firefighters, for example, uh, to make those decisions. And so they'll coordinate across levels of government, which I think is a, is a model that has worked um, and has been really uh, fine-tuned uh, from lessons learned from the past, as you suggested. 
What is the short-term uh, supports that people are getting? Because it's one thing for insurance, uh, underinsured or uninsured properties to be replaced with support from the uh, from the provincial government. But, you know, the generosity of individuals and the truckloads of stuff going across the island, that's all pretty important. But the short-term for where people are housed, because you might be lucky enough to have family and friends close by, you might be lucky enough to be able to get support from the Canadian Red Cross or the Salvation Army. But what are you seeing for the short-term solution for people? Because... You know, when you talk about the anxiety, yeah. the fear, and the worry of the house is gone and gone forever, what are people doing? Yeah, so right now um, we've been coordinating across uh, different stakeholders like the Red Cross to ensure that uh, the immediate needs of the people are met. So a shelter, as you suggest. But we know that if you're staying with a family member, if you're uh, if you're staying at your cabin, um, if once you've been displaced for the, from your home, uh, that that's only a temporary uh, solution. And so the provincial government will be there to support uh, people in that in the next phase, in the medium term phase, if you will, while we rebuild uh, some of their uh, some of their homes. So um, we understand that you know that there's significant financial requirements for that uh, to occur, both from a systems perspective, but also for the people, uh, the people who have been displaced, who still have mortgage payments, Patty, for example, who now are looking at kind of assuming a rent payment or something. We, we will be there to support them, and you can stay tuned over the next few days uh, for a financial uh, support package, and it will be uh, the, the thought process behind it will be uh, in those same phases, short, medium, and long term. The immediate, as you suggested, is these people have lost everything. Uh, they need to, you know, find a place to live, They need, which we will help with. But there's also significant uh, financial requirements attached to um, to that, and, and, and we'll be there to help them. What's your understanding of federal support? Because we know the Canadian Armed Forces are some 100 reservists are going to be coming from three separate platoons. But what else does the federal government have in store here? Because I don't really know what federal support looks like beyond that. Yeah, so there's a there's a federal support uh, system in place for uh, disasters, and we have availed of it in the past. And uh, the prime minister and my discussions have given me assurance that uh, that the similar programs will be in place, and we'll be able to uh, to use that to help fund the rebuild. I'm hopeful uh, that um, that this will turn into though a, a specific program for Atlantic Canada, uh, given that this is a is one of the worst storms. Well, it is the worst storm that Atlantic Canada has seen. So, uh, in addition to the human resources from the from the military's perspective, uh, I'm hopeful and confident uh, that uh, the Prime Minister and the federal government will be there with uh, with financial support as well. Appreciate the time. When we have more updates required here, you feel free to get back in touch with us on the program or, of course, in the newsroom. Thank you, Premier. And thanks, Patty. Look, thanks for doing everything you're doing to keep people updated. Uh, communication in this early stage is very important, and you're doing a great job, as is the rest of the media. Thanks so much for that. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. As Premier Andrew Fury, of course. And look, there's always an endless list of questions that I would have for someone like Premier Andrew Fury. The conscientious decision that I just made this morning was, let's focus in on the immediacy of the need on the southwest coast of the island. And I guarantee you, and as you know, as frequent listeners to the program, I have no qualms with asking any question of any elected official. We're just trying to get through a few of these important early days after the aftermath of Fiona. So don't you worry. If you want the so-called hard, tough questions on the issues of the day asked of the Premier, I'm happy to do it. So what we can do, indeed, is say, for instance, I'll try to schedule some time for, with him for next week. And we can do exactly that. 
will probably stay away from Fiona, will stay away from some of the initial supports that the people of the province need after these types of storms, and talk about whatever you want uh, to hear discussed with the Premier. Happy to do it. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, still lots of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the mayor of Channel Port of Bass. That's Brian Button. Good morning, Brian. Pardon me, Mayor Button. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Brian is fine. <laughs> okay, welcome back to the show. Give us the update. What do we know? Well, uh, today, you know, it's uh, again, it's another day now. And uh, like I say, we've had uh, various conversations this morning with the premier, uh, as well as uh, uh, from the federal counterparts that are here today as well. Uh, now we're in the process now of getting the incident response team set up here. Uh, we're getting a, a more of a command center that's being able now to orchestrate a lot of the things that are going on. Uh, we're talking about the financial support packages now and things like that. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it, this is a very long process. And I guess my job as mayor and my job uh, leading the community is to uh, is try to put that sense of patience over everybody, uh, the anxiety is still running very, very high in the community. Uh, we've got our jobs to do as well, but now we'll get the provincial uh, teams here on the ground, and and they're they're here now. But now we'll get a, a an actual post set up where we can actually get uh, things going because we've had a lot of people here just trying to assess what we're dealing with. You know, people have been quite quick uh, to respond with their donations, what have you. But at some point you're going to be saturated with goods. I mean, what are the real needs today? Because, you know, there's only so many pairs of men's pants that are probably required out there at this moment in time, not to diminish the generosity of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, but are we at a bit of a saturation point where, you know, maybe refocus our our donations or channel in, focus in, pardon me, on very specific things that are are in need? Yeah, that, that you, you hit that right on, you know, the, the kind-heartedness that has been shown so far it's it's just unbelievable but at some point with the think the material things and things like that we are getting overwhelmed with that and you know our, our places where we're br- bringing that are, are overfilled you know we have tractor trailers there now where they've been filling that up so the need right now is it's going to be a major financial need is that's going to be none so at least then for the things that we come up with that we need right off the get-go uh, at least there will be an opportunity to know that there's a you know a financial piece for it that we can we can avail of. Uh, it's it's just you know it's a hard thing to say to people when you you want to donate this and donate that. It's so much appreciated, but you're always afraid that if it gets to a point where all of a sudden it's so much there, will it all get used and uh, will it be just a, a little bit of a, a too much? Uh, but and there might be a time when we may have to call again and say if you have this. But I think we're we're getting to that point now where we have uh, uh, quite a bit of those things here. Have the schools reopened? No, the schools have not reopened. Uh, they're one of the focus things that we have to talk about here today on how uh, this will go. Uh, currently, as you see around town right now, with so many construction companies and so much going on. Uh, we got to be able to do that safely as well. Have children on the street getting bus. You know, we've got places where there's not even a bus stop, a bus shelter for these children where they would normally go and get the bus and those type things. So, I mean, the whole logistics of all that has got to be worked out because, again, our job here as municipal leaders is to public safety. And, and we don't want to have uh, children out on the streets and buses going around when we can't really do it uh, safely. But a plan, if if 
we found out that we could do it safely tomorrow, the next day or the next day, uh, that's when we'll make that call. Uh, but now as part of the state of emergency, I mean, uh, we need to uh, take that into focus and figure this all out before we do it. Structurally, they're okay? The schools are, oh yeah, the schools have, uh, are, are perfect. Uh, our schools are great. Uh, right now, though, we've been using those centres as well for shelter. Uh, we've been using the schools for shelter. We've been using the schools now for mental health services and those type things for people that would need that service. And uh, so they've been playing a major role uh, here in the community right now. And, uh, you know, we have uh, we have a lot of th- those issues to deal with, too. You know, you have a lot of children that have been impacted by this as well. A lot of children's friends have been impacted by this. So we need to make sure that those needs are being take- taken care of well. There's, there's just so many pieces to all of this. It's like I, I may not have never understood what it was to be in these situations to be able how does how do we get back and how do we do one step one two three like there are so many moving parts that you know you just it, you can understand now I have a real sense of why when this happens in communities and countries and so on and so forth why it takes a lot so long to get step one done uh, there's there's a lot lot attached to it. There's also, I don't know how to ask this question, but there's a real impact on people's psyche. And I don't even know what anyone can do about that because it impacted everyone differently. It's one thing if you woke up on Saturday with a home and Sunday it was gone, but the just the anxiety and the worry, what kind of supports are being put in place? I know we spoke with Minister Osborne about mental health crisis lines and what have you, but, you know, I don't know if the right phrase is to say grief counselors on site or what have you, but... Some attention to that is going to be a big part of rebuilding because we can rebuild this bricks and mortar, but people's sense of safety and what they saw and the stories of life's lost and, and other people that in great peril, what's on the ground right now? You know, a lot of people have been supporting each other. Uh, you know, we have got the mental health counselors that have been in various different locations here that we have and that people can avail of, but people have been supporting each other and people have been reaching out i mean the the warmth that i'm seeing even on the streets as people have been down student areas where they they once lived and coming up to each other and and reaching out and you know i've I've talked to one gentleman down in one site this morning and i mean he's a person i've known for a long time he's not a person that looks for anything he's a person that always gives he's a person that gives to others and tries to help out others he would give if he had two he would give you both uh but he's a guy now that he needs the things. And, and, but what he's getting most of all is emotional support and the support from people. And I consider myself a strong guy. I consider myself a strong person and can all help. You know, I've had many moments over the last few days that there's been many breakdowns on, you know, getting to talk to people here because, you know, we're close in these communities. And, uh, you know, if you don't realize it until these things happen, but it's having an emotional impact on us all and uh, I don't care who you are and uh, a lot of people are trying to help each other out and you know what our community is turned upside down it's it's I heard you talking to the premier it's the geography of this community is going to look different when this is all over what way it's going to look I don't know but it's going to look different and I would add to that uh, I'm not a counselor by any means but don't you don't have to put on a brave face if you don't feel that way because it's completely understandable for you to be worried 
or just been shocked by what we saw or you personally impacted you over the weekend. So if you feel like you need a little bit of support, please go get it because there's no badge of honor coming for someone putting on a brave face because you're doing yourself more harm than good. So whatever you need, make sure you can go get it. And please do go get it. If you need some additional advice or be pointed in the right direction and you think that we can help, put you in touch with an individual or a support line. We've got all the information at our fingertips. So I get it. It's a stressful time. Let's make sure we all do the best we can to manage that stress because that's going to make it easier to recover physically as well as mentally. Exactly. Good. That's good advice, uh, Patty, and uh, certainly we should all avail of that. But one of the things, I guess, for me calling this morning that is very important, and I know you talked to the Premier about financial support packages and, and things like that, that it's it's in the works and it's uh, you know it should be coming down and should be hearing more about it in the next little while. But one of the key parts of all of that, when that stuff rolls out, is that people have to register if they're you know, if they're displaced out of their home for, you know, just because you're over with a family member and you're comfortable, you still need to register. If you were displaced out of your home and you were out of that home, like you should have registered with the Red Cross at 1-800-863-6582. It's really important that you do that. And it's, it's, it's crucial, especially when we get into trying to help the person with the needs that they may have. Some may be small needs and we know a lot more are larger. Appreciate the time and the update this morning, Mayor Button. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Channel Bass Mayor Brian Button there with an update. And look, the needs are varied. And, you know, good on you folks for making the donations that you have made. I guess what we're going to try to do is between connecting with the Salvation Army or the Lions Club or the Church of Pasadena or the Canadian Red Cross, when they've reached a point where they have all they need so far as, late for, say, for instance, clothing, but they do have a continued need for whatever, baby formula or diapers or pillows or blankets. Any of those specifics, when we can boil it down and share that information with you, because I know you want to help, then we'll try to do exactly that. This is an interesting one. This comes from my uh, good buddy, Daryl Trelligan. He's in the contracting business. So what they did is they dropped off uh, two truckloads of tools and building materials that they had kicking around in their yard, dropped it off to Chris Hollard at Akita Equipment. So what he's suggesting, and this is always what we do here, like Radiothons and otherwise, if you're in that world, because remember, some of the community work can be done, for instance, to replace the fishing stage, what have you. So some building materials or tools, that's also probably going to be a really welcome site when they arrive in Port of Basque and surrounding communities. So that's a challenge out to the, those of you in the contracting business. Maybe some of your expertise and or equipment could be of great use on the southwest coast of the island as they try to recover from that bloody storm. Uh, let's go ahead and take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, we mentioned the very specific items that might still be needed out in Port of Basque and around the southwest coast. This is coming from the folks at the Lions Club in Port of Basque. What they're looking for are totes, containers, preferably with lids. So they need some of those. They need new sets of sheets. They need dish towels and dish cloths. So there's some specifics. If you were planning on making a donation, that's some of the things that they could use. Let's go to line number one. Ken, you're on the air. Good morning. It was a good afternoon. Close to it anyway. Just How are about. You? Just about. I'm doing okay. I'm, How you doing? I'm doing pretty good, actually. I just drove back from Shediac, New Brunswick, and I drove through Nova Scotia to North Sydney, and uh, it's really, really bad. You know, um, are, are you still there? I am listening. Oh, okay. Sorry. I'm also a little tired, and uh, the devastation is really like. Where I was staying in Shediac, the house people I was staying with, their house wasn't touched 
but just across the street, their hedge was uh, torn up. Their tree was uprooted just a few streets down. Same thing, trees were uprooted, houses were damaged, business, no power. And um, I left there Sunday morning to drive to Sydney, Nova Scotia, uh, to North Sydney. And the things I saw were really, really, really bad. And But what I also saw was a lot of people helping others clean things up, clean things off the highway. And um, I got to, I think it's place is called Bedeck, and uh, the motel that we were supposed to stay in was basically gone. Like, the, the restaurant, the kitchen, the roof was torn off. Most most of the cabins were co- completely damaged. So we got to North Sydney, and, and that was pretty bad also, but we were lucky enough to get a crossing that day, that day instead of having to wait till Monday. And when we, now when we got to Portobacks, we really had no my, – my, my message is that the highway is pretty clear. When we got to Portobacks, we had no trouble getting onto the highway and back to Topsail. Now I'm on my way home to Harbour Grace. But it said that the destruction is unbelievable. And, uh, like, I got a message for some – you know, a lot of the people that are listening. Uh, like, give these guys a break. They're going through a lot right now. The four um, – the owner of the hotel was really devastated because he was upset. He was more upset that he wasn't able to call us to cancel the reservation. So the you know the, the store owners, the gas station attendants, all these people are going through hell. So I'm asking people to just be patient and give them a break. And you know that's about it. Fair ball, and it's good advice. You know, everyone needs a bit of time here to decompress as we work through what is oh going to be God. a long time to recover. It's just the reality that we're dealing with. Yes, and, and like I'm safely home, so it was a long drive, but uh, I'm safely home. And I really feel good, but I still, I, still, I remember, I, I'm thinking of my friends in, in, in Shediac and, and Nova Scotia, because uh, a lot of them are still without power, and you know, most of my friends are seniors, so it's, it's really difficult, but I'm just asking people to be patient with them. And, and with the donations, you, you're absolutely right about the donations. The clothes is okay, but they need necessities more than anything else. Yeah, here's another list that I just got from uh, uh, one of the listeners sent along. This comes from the Lions Club in Porto Bass. So they need diabetic socks, hairbrushes, razors for both men and women. They need shaving cream, children's medicine, uh, Tylenol, Advil, nail clippers, yep. tissues, toilet paper, towels, yep. face cloths, and hand towels. So that's, that's some specifics. Need. Like, I mean, the clothes is okay. Clothes is, clothes is not that difficult to get. It's the other stuff to get because a lot of the stores right now are closed. Uh, basically, every every everything along the route where we stopped, except a couple of gas stations, were closed. We couldn't even stop to get gas because the lineups were so big, and people were just getting gas for their uh, for their generators. And uh, like, if somebody's getting gas for the generators, and you just want some gas for your car, like back up and let them get the gas for the generators first. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Prioritizing things is going to be part of it, and that requires a bit of patience for all hands as well. Ken, I'm glad you made it home safe, and I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you very much. You're you have welcome. a good day. Same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, very quickly, see if I can get this list out. For folks who are, would like to get some of their donations, the, sp- the specifics that we put out there for you. So this is for Guardian Transportation. They have a truck leaving the crossroads at Kemmout Road tomorrow morning between 7 and 8.30. Here's where they're going to be. Whitburn Irving around 9.15. Goobies Irving around 10.15. Clarenville Irving around 11 a.m. Eastport Junction 12.15. Gander Irving, Goose at 2 p.m., Lewisport Junction at 3, 
Bishop's Falls, Irving at 4. Badger, Irving, 445. Eddie's in Southbrook at 530. Bayford Junction Restaurant at 630. The Deer Lake North Atlantic at 8 o'clock. And the Cornerbrook Pin Scales at 9 p.m. Okay, there we go. Good show today. Appreciate the support the program gets, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.